Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Gars Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace, and I am the director of the museum. I do hope you are enjoying this series of podcasts and that they are proving to be a source of information and amusement for you. You're encouraged to send in your views and feedback to my email address, which is guardsmuseum, or one word, at aol.com. Two weeks ago, I took you through the Peninsula Campaign and Waterloo. So now, we move on to the Crimea and the Sudan. But before we do so, I want to pause and look at a few other items from the first half of the 19th century, which we have on display. As children, many of us will have learnt the nursery rhyme about the grand old Duke of York who had 10,000 men. But how many of you knew that it was actually based on an event that really happened? Field Marshal, His Royal Highness Frederick, Duke of York, was Commander-in-Chief, not only during Waterloo, but also during a very long period of peace. And as every commander knows, it's hard to make training interesting when you do not have a war to fight. He went to watch the guards training on Chobham Heath, when he was asked, Sir, what would you like the men to do? He was caught somewhat unawares, so he said, Um, march him up that hill. To which the commanding officer replied, Certainly, sir. And when they arrive at the top, um, marching back down again. It was deemed to be so bloody pointless that a rhyme sprang up which has amused countless generations ever since. In his defence, the Duke of York was both young and inexperienced when he was placed in command in the Low Countries, and he had a hard learning curve to deal with. But learn he did, and he brought that experience and those tough lessons to bear when he was appointed Commander-in-Chief. He it was who promoted the use of light troops such as the Rifle Corps. He standardised training manuals. He invested in proper recruitment rather than the pressing of men. He standardised manoeuvres on the battlefield. He established a military college that went on to become Sandhurst, as well as the Duke of York's School for Cadets, both of which are still operating today. In the words of Sir John Fortescue, The Duke of York did more for the army than any man had done in the whole of its history. There is an impressive monument to him at the bottom of the Mall. A wide set of stairs from the Mall take you up to Carlton Gardens, where you find a 124-foot column, perched on which is a magnificent statue by Sir Richard Westmacott, which was unveiled in 1834. From his vantage point... If he looks right, the grand old Duke of York can see Buckingham Palace, and if he looks half left, he can see Horse Guards Parade, where Trooping the Colour takes place. So, although he has been gone for 193 years, he's still very much keeping an eye on standards within the Guards. In the museum, we have his bearskin, sash, sword and gorget on display, along with a large brass plaque which sets out that they belonged to him while he served as Colonel of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards, in which capacity he served for 21 years. The sash is particularly interesting, in that it is silk and of an open weave. Normally, officers would wear a close weave sash about their waists when in tunic order. However, when they went into battle, they would swap it for an open weave version. Being silk, it was very strong, 
and with the sash measuring almost eight feet in length, it made a perfect hammock come stretcher when unwound. The officers would wear them so as to allow their bodies to be easily removed from the battlefield if they were hit. Your soldier's servant and one other would unwind the sash from your waist and place your body inside it and would carry you away before the desecrators came along. Yes, the desecrators would cut off fingers to get any gold rings, but they would also pull out any good teeth you had to be remounted in wooden blocks for sale as false teeth. Sets of Waterloo teeth exist to this day. We also have the Duke of York vase on display. It was presented to the Duke by the officers of the Coldstream Guards as a token of their affection and gratitude for his 21 years as Colonel of their regiment. When the Duke died, the vase passed to His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge and when he died in 1904, it was sold. In 1910, King George V handed it back to the regiment at the specific request of an anonymous individual who had purchased it. The vase goes out once a year to the annual dinner of the Coldstream Guards and Nullai Officers Club. In the days when firearms were all muzzle-loaded, the gunpowder was carried in what they called powder horns, which is exactly what they were, horns that carried powder. The horns usually came from cows, oxen or buffalo and were sealed at the wide end and given a brass or silver spout and stopper to seal in the powder. There were other variations such as deer antler but primarily they were made of bovid horn. The privates were allowed to decorate the horns with designs. These designs usually carried the name or cap badge of their regiment perhaps some of the regiment's battle honours and dates, as well as anything else that mattered to the individual. We have a very fine example in the museum. This powder horn is silver-mounted and belonged to Private Peter Smith of the Grenadier Guards. It dates back to the early part of the 19th century. We know it was carried by him on the 1828 expedition to restore the Portuguese monarchy. The method of carving, or sometimes burning, designs into the horn is called scrimshaw, and the ornateness of the design depended entirely on the skill of the engraver. This particular horn carries the name 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards and has the words Lisbon, Portugal in a position of prominence, as well as the year 1828. It is then further adorned by the addition of several Masonic devices, such as the set square, compasses, level, heavy maul and sprigs of acacia, all of which have meaning in Masonic ritual. It also carries the rather sobering inscription, Blessings are upon the head of the just, but violence covereth the mouth of the wicked. It's quite thrilling to think of Private Smith swinging his powder horn up to the muzzle of his tower musket to pour in a shot of gunpowder before spitting in the musket ball and tamping it down with his ramrod. All these artefacts act as bridges to take us straight back to those desperate battle scenes 192 years ago. Someone else who richly deserves a mention in this podcast before we hit the Crimean campaign is Jacob the Goose. Jacob has an interesting story. The Coldstream Guards were sent to Canada in 1838 to deal with the revolting Frenchmen. 
by that I mean Frenchmen who were revolting, against the British rule of law. Whilst there, the sentry saved a goose from being attacked by a fox. The grateful goose then attached himself to the sentry and returned to England with him when the regiment returned home. Jacob was made an officer and given a gorget to wear. A gorget is a piece of vestigial armour and used to be worn around the throat to protect the vulnerable area between the top of the breastplate and the bottom of the helmet. In later years, the gorget was worn to identify the duty officer and was fastened to the top two buttons of the officer's tunic. Jacob wore his gorget with pride and was formally taken on to the strength of the regiment. He frequently warned the sentries of an impending attack by his flapping and honking. To this day, many households keep geese as a form of alarm. Jacob served for many years until he met his demise when he was run over by a delivery van at Portman Street Barracks. The museum has Jacob's head stuffed on display along with his gorget. History does not relate what happened to the rest of Jacob, but as I read this, I am trying not to picture Jacob's final parade surrounded by roast potatoes. Well, it was the Coldstream Guards after all. You'll recall in episode 5, I shared with you some of the readings from the memoirs of General George Higginson of the 1st or Grenadier Regiment of Foot Guards. Well, we have on display a portrait of Higginson when he was but a captain, so around the time he was adjutant of the 3rd Battalion in the Crimea. The painting is interesting in that the artist, John Lucas, painted Higginson in frock coat order. However, the painting was badly scorched during a house fire and the restoration work revealed that he originally painted Higginson in full-dress scarlet tunic order. Traces of the scarlet paint can clearly be seen through the black paint of the frock coat. What the artist failed to do was to change the sword knot the ornamental decoration on the basket of the sword. It still shows the full-dress gold sword knot instead of the buff leather sword knot which should be worn with frock coat order as that is an in-barracks order of dress. Displayed next to his portrait, we have a rather fine and rather touching item. As you have been told, Higginson served as adjutant with the 3rd Battalion of the Grenadiers in the Crimea. He fought in several battles and helped save the colours at the Sandbag Battery. On his return from Russia, he had his bearskin cap made into a muff for his mother. The muff was suspended on a chain worn around the neck, which held the restyled bear fur at waist height. It was open at either end to allow his mother to keep her hands warm by tucking them inside this fur tube. When the muff was given to the museum, we found his white plume wrapped in tissue and packed in with the muff. There was a card with it which read, My dear son's feather from his grenadier cap worn in the Crimea. As his book recounts, he wrote to his parents regularly whilst on active service and they were instrumental in sending him much-needed supplies to make up the deficiencies in the provision of essentials through the military supply chain. And talking of supplies, Higginson brought back a fine pair of bullock's horns. I've got to be careful reading that one. 
a fine pair of bullock's horns, which were then cleaned and adorned with silver mountings as desk trophies from the campaign. Bullocks were used to drag supplies up to the front line from the port. I suspect the owner of these horns went the same way that Jacob the Goose went on his demise. So we are now in the Crimean campaign. The war started over religious rights of Christian minorities in the Holy Land, which was then part of the Ottoman Empire. The French favoured the rights of Roman Catholics and the Russians favoured the rights of the Eastern Orthodox Church, which caused friction. As the power of the Ottoman Empire started to decline, Britain and France refused to allow Russia to gain territory in the Holy Land. The two churches thrashed out their differences and drew up an agreement. But Tsar Nicholas I and Napoleon III refused to give way or to sign the agreement. Britain mediated as best it could and drew up a new agreement which the Tsar agreed to, but the Ottomans threw it out and declared war on Russia. Initially, it all kicked off in the Balkans, with Russia occupying what is now Romania. The Ottoman leader, Omar Pasha, fought a successful defensive campaign and halted the Russian incursion. Britain and France rushed troops to Gallipoli and thence to Varna, by which stage the Russians had relinquished their hold on Silistra and the conflict stagnated into inertia. Frustrated by this, the Allies decided to hit Russia's main naval base in the Black Sea at Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula to limit their ability to operate out of that port. The Allies marched to Sevastopol in September 1854, successfully joined battle with the Russians at a place called Alma. The Russians counterattacked at Balaclava in October and again in November at Inkerman after which there was a stalemate, both sides having incurred huge losses. After an 11-month siege, Sevastopol eventually fell and finally the Tsar sued for peace, resulting in the 1856 Treaty of Paris. The Crimean campaign is nowadays held up as an example of military, logistical and medical mismanagement. But it does not and should not minimise the bravery displayed and the sacrifices made by the soldiers that took part. As I always remind visitors to the museum, soldiers do not start wars, politicians do, but it's the soldiers who fill the body bags. In episode two, I described the events of the Battle of Alma, in which Lieutenant Lloyd Lindsay and Sergeant McKechnie won the newly instigated Victoria Cross and how poor old Lieutenant Thistlethwaite did not receive one despite being as brave as the other two in defending the colours against the Russian onslaught. He died two weeks after the battle from the fever, and in those early days the Victoria Cross was not awarded posthumously. In September 1854, the Russians had made their stand on the high ground south of the River Alma. This natural advantage was further improved by the addition of earthworks and batteries for their field guns. The Russian general Menshikov boasted that he could hold out for at least three weeks. After the battle he said, I knew we would be fighting valiant men, but I had not bargained for them being red devils. The battle was a complicated and bloody affair, 
with massive errors being perpetrated by both the French general, Saint-Arnaud, and by the British general, Lord Ragman. The battle was bitterly contested, dreadfully costly in terms of human life, and throughout there was little direction given by either leader. Raglan tried to copy Wellington by keeping his intentions to himself. However, when Wellington did issue orders, he ensured they were crystal clear. Ragland issued no orders other than to make a suicidal frontal attack up the steepest and most heavily defended part of the battlefield. Added to this, when the armies deployed, they were crowded on top of each other and couldn't offer support to those in the vanguard for fear of hitting their own allied troops. The light division was ordered across the river and into battle. The boggy ground made progress hard and meant they couldn't regroup after the crossing. Nevertheless, they fought forward and took the battery at the top, but were immediately beaten back in a Russian counter-attack, and they were beaten back onto the advancing Scots Fusilier guards, causing massive confusion. The guards managed to extricate themselves from the melee and recapture the battery. Meanwhile, the Grenadiers and Coldstream managed to cross the river and reform in good order before advancing up in support of the Light Division and the Scots Fusilier Guards. The moment they had a clear field of fire, the Grenadiers and Coldstream poured a stream of lethal fire into the Russian troops around the battery, giving the Scots and the Light Dragoons time to regroup. They then joined forces and put in a concerted attack, driving the Russians from their stronghold, which in turn put the entire Russian army into retreat. It was during this battle that Lieutenant Lloyd Lindsay, Lieutenant Thistlethwaite and Sergeant McKechnie rallied the remnants of the Scots Fusilier Guards around the embattled colours and fought forward against impossible odds to win the day. A month later, the Guards were to distinguish themselves yet again in battle. The right flank of the besieging army around Sevastopol rested on a ridge called Inkerman. General Menshikov's plan was to outflank the Allies, driving them back from west to east, recapturing Balaclava en route and driving the Allies back to the coast. The plan looked great on paper, but the reality was to prove very different. At Inkerman, the first Russian artillery shells were fired just after dawn on the 5th of November, and for the next three hours a fierce battle raged across the ridge particularly around a small redoubt called the Sandbag Battery. This tiny, rather unimportant feature took on an undeserved importance, becoming the symbol of victory for both the Allies and the Russian forces. Neither side was willing to give up on this particular piece of real estate, which actually had very little strategic importance at all. Each side would attack and drive off the holders of the battery, only to lose it again on counter-attack. The entire battle lasted some ten hours, and during that time the Russians lost almost 12,000 men out of a total force of 42,000, and the Allies lost 2,400 out of a total of 8,500 engaged. There are wildly varying estimates of the losses. It was very difficult to count the dead as many just crawled away into the thick scrub and died. The combined effect of the thick scrub, 
the rough terrain and drifting fog, along with the high number of casualties among the officer ranks, made this battle one which would be forever known as the Soldiers' Battle. The Crimean Campaign was the first major conflict that was followed by the British public in real time. Until then, armies sailed away to war and either came back or they didn't. Being removed from sight for protracted periods rather lessened the impact of any significant loss of life. Deaths and casualties just became numbers rather than flesh and bone. However, the daily reports sent home by war correspondents via the new telegraph system enabled people at home in Britain to have a far better understanding of the scale of the losses and the dreadful privations being suffered by the soldiers on the battlefield. Queen Victoria was given daily updates on progress in the Crimea. She felt the losses in a very personal way, aware that they were soldiering in her name. When the Scots Fusilier Guards returned to London, she held a special audience for them in Buckingham Palace. As she made her way round the room, talking with the men and sympathising with the casualties, she came up to a huge man, Colour Sergeant William MacGregor. She inquired after his health, then asked about the dreadful conditions and the lack of rations, to which the Colour Sergeant replied, It wasn't too bad, Your Majesty, but the jam tasted of fish. Apparently, they had liberated a quantity of beluga caviar and had tucked in, not realising what it was. It could only happen in the guards. How was the battle? Dreadful, dear boy. All we had to eat was caviar. Being a museum director occasionally calls for a bit of tact. One such instance concerns some memorabilia that was donated to us by a member of the public. This rather elderly person came in to see me and explained that one of this lady's forebears was a very gallant officer who had fought with distinction in the Crimea and had died a hero. The artefacts handed to us were indeed very interesting and made for an interesting tale, so we decided to research the man's records to enable us to create a fulsome display around his possessions. However, what we got back revealed a rather different story. The man had indeed been a guards officer, and he had indeed sailed to war with his regiment. However, it transpires that he died on board ship just as they anchored in Russian waters, and as the records clearly show, he died of the pox, never having set foot on Russian soil. No doubt somebody weaved a new story to cover the demise of this officer that would have been more palatable to his relatives. Needless to say, we drew a veil over the circumstances and moved on. Before she met her beloved Prince Albert, Princess Victoria had a boyfriend by the name of Charles Russell, an officer in the Grenadier Guards. It was bitterly cold in the Crimea and the ladies at court would sit and knit scarves and mittens for their boyfriends and Princess Victoria was no exception. How do we know this? Yes, you guessed it. We have the scarf and mittens here on display. What is interesting is that it was only officers who were allowed to wear scarves and mittens. It was felt that allowing the rank and file to wear them would make them look rather soft. Not sure I follow the logic there. Now, Major Sir Charles Russell won a Victoria Cross at the Battle of Inkerman for the part he played in the retaking of the sandbag battery. His citation refers to his prodigious feats of valour. At one point in the battle, 
Russell had his life saved by one of his own soldiers, one Private Anthony Palmer. He saw his officer was about to be bayoneted by a Russian. Palmer had no rounds left, so he rushed forward and stove in the skull of the Russian with the butt of his rifle, and in doing so, he saved his officer's life, for which he was also awarded a Victoria Cross. However, Palmer was famous for one other thing. He was the last man in the British Army to be branded as a deserter. In fact, Palmer was a serial deserter. He was convicted for desertion or being absent without leave on no less than ten separate occasions. He was promoted to corporal and reduced to private again on three separate occasions. He ended up being branded as a deserter and he was branded with what they call the deserter's D. It is a brass instrument about six inches long. At one end, it has a set of short pins in the shape of a capital D, on the end of a rod with a spring around it. At the other end, there is a stopper that you pull on to lock or cock the rod against the spring. The pins were dipped into indelible ink, then the tool was cocked. The punishment was administered by the drum major under the watchful eyes of the adjutant and the surgeon. The tool was placed on the man's chest and was triggered by depressing a key on the barrel which released the spring and drove the pins into the man's flesh, leaving a permanent letter D to show he was a convicted deserter. There was another similar tool with the letters BC which stood for bad character. So here we have a man who was a branded deserter who went on to be awarded the highest award for bravery that Britain could give. This was the alpha and the omega of military performance, the lowest of the low rising to rank among the highest of the high. In fact, you could say he was awarded the VC twice. His original VC went missing in a pub fight and Queen Victoria gave permission for a replica to be struck. The original medal was later found and presented to the regiment. Ironically, when he left the regiment, Palmer went to work in the docks in the East End of London. He ended up as the head of the dockyard police in Millwall Docks, a strange choice of job for someone who served two separate prison sentences during his military career. Without doubt, though, a rogue that came good in the end. One other Grenadier Victoria Cross winner I'd like to talk about is Captain and Lieutenant Colonel Henry Hugh Manners Percy. At this time they were still operating what they called the double ranking system, whereby an officer would hold a commission in the army, but could also hold a higher commission in a specific regiment. So in this case he was a captain in the wider army, but served as a lieutenant colonel in the Grenadiers. The Percy family is one of the oldest established families in England, and it is the family name of the Dukes of Northumberland. Their family seat is in Annick Castle on the coast in Northumberland and the very fine castle was used to film part of the Harry Potter series of films on account of it looking very much how J.K. Rowling envisaged Hogwarts school. Young Percy fought in the Battle of Alma where he was wounded. He then fought at Inkerman where he was wounded again as well as at Balaclava where yet again he was wounded. Talk about an indomitable spirit. At Inkerman he led a charge into the sandbag battery and, against far superior forces, managed to fend off repeated counterattacks by the Russians. 
When his little band of soldiers ran out of ammunition, he encouraged his men to throw stones at the advancing Russians. Eventually the Russians started doing the same thing, and Percy was knocked off the parapet by a rock, but he climbed back up again. The Russians then got a little bolder, and threw that. Sorry, old joke, but I couldn't resist it. And the larger stone rendered him unconscious. He only came round when he heard someone shout, CHARGE! Pouring with blood and half-blind, he joined his men and drove the Russians downhill to rout them. What an inspiration he must have been for his men. It seemed he was indestructible. Whatever the Russians hit him with, he just bounced back and carried on fighting with his men. As the Bible says, by their actions shall ye know them. We now move on to the Sudan campaign. The year is 1882 and an expeditionary force was sent to Egypt to quell a revolutionary uprising led by Arabi Pasha. The force contained a brigade commanded by Major General His Royal Highness the Duke of Connaught and they fought in the Battle of Tel el-Kabir. Soon after there was a rebellion in the Sudan and General Gordon was besieged at Khartoum by the Mahdi. A guard's camel regiment was formed as part of the relief force and if ever the guards had the hump, it was now. The guards have always had a love of straight lines, formations and squares and for several months they tried unsuccessfully to inflict cavalry drills onto the camels until eventually they decided it was fine just to move round as a blob. The guards' camel regiment fought at the Battle of Abu Clay the guards were fighting the indigenous East African tribe called the Hadendawa, which translates as the Lion Clan, or the Children of the Lioness. They were famous for their very elaborate hairstyles, which gave rise to their nickname of the Fuzzy Wuzzies. Now in battle, the British infantry were famous for their use of the square, the four-sided formation of two ranks on each side, the front rank kneeling and the rear rank standing behind. With their Martini Henry rifles, British squares could keep up withering volley fire and defend itself from attacks on all sides. The drums and colours were in the centre with the reserve force to plug any gaps that appeared. But these resourceful tribesmen managed to break the square, an unheard of thing. They were only defeated when the rear rank of guards about turned and opened fire. A further guards brigade was sent to the Sudan in 1885 and fought at Suakin. The 1st Battalion of the Grenadiers was in the force that finally reconquered the Sudan at the Battle of Omdurman, and this was the last time in which the guards regiments fought in line. Rudyard Kipling summed up the guards' deep respect for this brave foe in the poem Fuzzy Wuzzy, and it goes like this. We fought with many men across the sea, and some of them was brave and some was not. The Pathan and the Zulu, and Burmese, but the Fuzzy, he was the finest of the lot. We never got a hapeth worth of change of him. He squatted in the scrub and knocked our horses. He cut our sentries up at Swarkim, and he played cat and banjo with our forces. So here's to you, Fuzzy Wuzzy, at your home in the Sudan. You're a poor benighted heathen but a first-class fighting man. We gives you your certificate, and if you want it signed, we'll come and have a romp with you whenever you're inclined.
We took our chance among the Khyber hills, the Boers knocked us silly at a mile. The Burman gave us Irrawaddy chills, and the Zulu Impi dished us up in style. But all we ever got from such as they was pop to what the fuzzy made us swallow. We held our own, the papers say, but man for man the fuzzy knocked us holler. Then here's to you, fuzzy wuzzy, and the missus and the kid. Our orders was to break you, and of course we went and did. We sloshed you with martinis, and it wasn't hardly fair. But for all the odds again, you fuzzy was, you broke the British square. He hasn't got no papers of his own. He hasn't got no medals nor rewards. So we must certify the skill that he has shown in using of his long two-handled swords. When he's hopping in and out among the bush with his coffin-headed shield and shovel spear, an happy day with Fuzzy on the rush will last an healthy Tommy for a year. So here's to you, Fuzzy Wuzzy, and your friends which are no more. If we hadn't lost some messmates, we would help you to deplore. But given takes the gospel, and we'll call the bargain fair. For if you have lost more than us, you crumpled up our square. And before we knows, he's hacking at our head. He's all lot sand and ginger when alive, and he's generally shamming when he's dead. He's a daisy, he's a ducky, he's a lamb. He's an injury-rubber idiot on the spree. He's the only thing that doesn't give a damn for a regiment of British infantry. And here's to you, Fuzzy Wuzzy, with your hayrick head of hair. You big black bounding beggar, for you broke a British square. This was the first time the guards fought in anything other than their famous red coats. They found they rather stood out against the light sand of the Bayuda Desert. By the way, why did all British infantry regiments have scarlet tunics? Many would have you believe that the colour red made it hard to count British forces at a distance, or that it wouldn't show the blood if you were hit, thus demoralising the enemy. All rubbish, of course. The real and far more prosaic reason was that scarlet cochineal was the cheapest dye that the army could buy. Hence, everything was red. We have on display an example of the grenadier's uniform designed to match the sand of the Bayuda Desert. When they marched the grenadiers round to the forecourt of Buckingham Palace to show Queen Victoria the new uniform, she professed herself to be horrified and inquired who had decided to place her soldiers into this dreadful café au lait shade. We also have on display a set of medals that were won by Private Gore of the Scots Guards. He fought at the Battle of Tel el-Kabir, and two weeks after the battle, he went to the battalion surgeon and said, Excuse me, sir, I've got a dreadful headache, and I can't get rid of it. Could you have a wee look? The surgeon examined him, and found that Gore had been shot in the back of the head. The surgeon removed the lead round, which he found had actually split on impact with Gore's skull. So... For uncomplainingly serving for two weeks with a lump of lead in his head, they awarded him the Distinguished Conduct Medal. The DCM medal is mounted on a small wooden plaque, along with the split lead bullet that was removed from Private Gore's head. This goes to prove that if you want to kill a Scotsman, don't shoot him in the head. It simply doesn't work. Well, that's about it for this week. I hope you feel you've been served a decent slice of bearskins and bayonets and plenty of bravery too, as portrayed in the Crimean and Sudan campaigns.
If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes, and leave us a rating, please, as that helps us a lot. The museum receives no external funding at all, so if you'd like to help us survive the pandemic shutdown and support our work here, you can go to our website at www.theguardsmuseum.com and hit the Support Us button. Or you can go straight to our giving page at www.justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash Guards Museum support. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode eight of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next week, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up, down and get away.